Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. My guest today is Samuel Goldman. He is an associate professor of political science and director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom at George Washington University. He's a frequent uh, contributor to the American Conservative and the New Criterion Wall Street Journal, Providence, and is the literary editor of The Modern Age. Uh, Professor Goldman, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to have you on and talk about uh, a piece that you uh, recently had published in the spring 2019 edition of uh, The Modern Age, um, uh, talking about uh, what you call the German problem. And we'll go into a little bit of the specifics uh, around that. But uh, you... um, uh, are a, a frequent writer and, and a, uh, I guess, commentator on uh, the the rise of anti-Semitism in, in Europe and the United States, um, the uh, role of uh, Israel in, in the kind of modern world and its and its dealing with its uh, critics. Uh, you are uh, recent recently in 2018 wrote a book, God's Country: Christian Zionism in America, uh, for uh, Pencil- University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, so. Talk a little bit, if you can, about just the the current state of uh, the instability and crisis that we see in in Europe, and uh, maybe even uh, potentially in Germany, the rise of anti-Semitism, uh, the struggle to find and articulate uh, national identities, um, and uh, just maybe elucidate maybe a little bit of the the background into uh, your your piece in um, uh, uh, called the German problem. Well, I think the place to begin might be with the Second World War or its immediate aftermath, uh, which was a period in which it was widely believed uh, that what used to be called the national question in Europe had finally been settled. After half a century of warfare, uh, the deaths of tens of millions of people, the destruction of large swaths of the European continent, including many of its great cities, uh, finally, Europe, or at least Western Europe, was composed of relatively homogeneous nation states that lacked large national minorities speaking a different language or practicing a very distinctive religion, a a problem that had plagued Europe uh, since the French Revolution, if if not before. And for the next four or five decades, it seemed that that solution had been successful. When communism fell in 1989, it was hoped that European nations could finally overcome their history of rivalry and live together not only in peace but under some degree of common institutions. But that hasn't proved to be the case for two reasons. One, internal to Europe and the other external. The internal reason is that the institutional design of the European Union and the expansion of its membership has made it virtually ungovernable. And institutions that were believed to lay the basis for a kind of cooperative uh, federalism have come to feel very coercive and incompatible with traditions of national self-determination. And I think we see that in, in the resistance to um, every proposal for a European constitution, which, which has been rejected by voters in various countries. 
The external challenge has been the growth of uh, non-European immigration. This immigration did not begin after the fall of communism in 1989. In fact, it began a great deal of early, earlier, uh, almost immediately after the Second World War, when European countries like France and Germany uh, began to import foreign labor to replace the mostly young men who had been killed or maimed uh, in uh, in the war in the war itself, um, and to work in in factories and rebuild uh, uh, national national industry. Um, but in addition to to those flows of guest workers, as the European states began to wind up their overseas uh, empires, and as um, travel and bound obstacles to movement began to fall, um, the, these these flows were uh, were increased exponentially. Um, and finally, uh, in the middle of this decade, with the Syrian crisis. And the um, uh, expulsion of uh, millions of of people, not only from Syria but also from neighboring regions, um, that tension has come to seem unbearable. And the decision of uh, Germany's governing coalition, led by Angela Merkel, to admit more than a million Syrian refugees uh, really seemed to be a breaking point. And since then, there has been uh, really a dramatic revival of, uh, again, what was thought a settled question, the the national question. Um, That is to say, arguments about where borders should be drawn, uh, how hard those borders should be, and even more fundamentally, what it really means to be German or to be French or to be Italian. And it's in response to that situation that I wrote uh, this essay. So, so much of uh, the um, actions that uh, Europe has taken collectively, you know, since uh, World War II, uh, have been reactionary, right? I mean, they're they're reacting to, uh, in a span of you know between 1917 and, and 1945, you had two massive continent-wide, you know, worldwide conflagrations that all began, you know, kind of there um, uh, in in Germany or between Germany and. And its neighbors, and so in in reaction, they're they're trying to knit together some sort of uh, cohesive pan-European, you know, uh, utopia where such things and such rivalries are, are no longer going to be uh, kind of the case. Um, but it, it kind of points to this this reactionary um, element, this this reflex, I would say. Um, that we see maybe even particularly in Germany, and, and you talk a little bit about this uh, kind of in your piece, that there's a, a, a unique German problem here. There's a, a unique uh, German taste to this kind of struggle that we see uh, many of the European uh, nations having with the European Union, both the internal and the external kind of you just mentioned. But there, there's something unique about the, the German problem. So dig in a little bit to um, uh, your piece now and to the, uh, um, the particularities of this, the German situation. Right. So uh, compared to France, for example, um, these tensions seem to be particularly severe. So uh, France certainly has uh, its own history of uh, exclusive nationalism, of, of 
chauvinism, of imperialism, and so on. But but France also um, has a strong culture of assimilation, a sense of France as uh, a, a universal nation with uh, a, a mission to the whole human race that counterbalances some of these concerns about national identity. Germany really doesn't in the same way. Um, that's not to say that there is no history of uh, a, a sort of German national mission. In, in fact, um, some of the earliest theorists of, of German nationalism made precisely this case. People like the philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte in his famous addresses to the German nation. But as it turned out, the most assertive version of German exceptionalism and the strongest claim on a world historical role for the German nation uh, was made by, by Hitler, by Hitler and the Nazis. Um, and the result of that was uh, not only the murder of six million Jews, but three or four million uh, uh, Others um, who should not be should not be forgotten in this um, discussion, uh, as well as the the destruction of much of the continent. So, whereas uh, members of some other European countries have been able to draw on different elements of their histories as they've tried to construct a more peaceful, cooperative, and open conception of what their national identity means, for Germans, uh, the, the wall of history seems to be dropped. They're, they're, it's much harder to reach back into the past to find examples or inspirations for, for the present. And the essay to which I respond in, in my piece, um, I call it an essay, it's really a very short book, uh, maybe a pamphlet would be, uh, would be a better term, um, is a meditation on that problem. Um, so it is a posthumous publication by the historian um, and uh, environmental theorist uh, Rolf Peter Zieferle um, that uh, appeared in 2017, uh, the year after his suicide. And it's, it's, it's a meditation on this burden of history in particular from the perspective of a writer who was born in the late 1940s and therefore had no uh, direct role in the Third Reich. And what, what Zieferle is, is asking is, what does German history mean? Is it, is it a, a curse, a, a burden, or even a cross? And I use that term advisedly for reasons I think we'll, we'll right. go on to discuss, that we have to bear for, for, for all time? Or can we Germans forgive ourselves for what we have done, especially what we have done between uh, 1933 and 1945, and move on to chart an independent course for ourselves as a nation. So if so much of Europe is uh, kind of uh, reacting to World War II in general, you know, Germany is, is reacting specifically, like you said, to Nazism, but I mean, almost the embodiment of that, the, the, um, the avatar for all of that is the Holocaust, right? It is, the Holocaust is the the um, kind of main 
priority, the main example, the the kind of embodiment, uh, historic embodiment of an event that is is what since that uh, the end of World War II, Germany has been trying to kind of eschew and trying to separate themselves from, and um, it has it, I mean, it's caused um, a. The way in which Germans and the way in which really uh, the world and even here in the United States, which we'll talk about maybe in a minute, uh, deals with the Holocaust uh, is um, is fascinating and is at kind of the root of your essay and at the root of this kind of controversy because uh, Der Spiegel, the the uh, um, main uh, kind of uh, publication there in Germany, you know, failed to include uh, Zeiferle's, you know, book in their top, um, top 10 bestsellers, even though it was a bestseller. I mean, even though it was a, uh, um, a very popular book, uh, their failure to include in the top 10, uh, best list did not, uh, you know, dampen its sales of anything. Just like always, if you say, well, don't read this book, everyone's going to go read this book. Um, but they, they didn't include it because he talks about the Holocaust and uses language that um, many people say he's trying to deny the Holocaust or he's trying to say that uh, minimize it perhaps. Um, and it gets to just the way in which Der Spiegel, the way in which even the I think the whole German nation has been dealing with Seifer Lee's book is this little encapsulation of the problem that he's trying to address in the book, right? It's just a little test case. Um, so lay out some of, you know, maybe some of the criticism, some of the responses to the criticism and the um, – uh, you know, the way in which uh, Zeiferle is trying to address the, the particular burden that the Holocaust presents to uh, modern Germany. So probably the most important of the offending passages uh, that led uh, Der Spiegel to, to blank uh, the book on its bestseller list um, was one in which Zeiferle speaks of what, what he calls uh, the myth of the Holocaust. Uh, and this was taken in particular, I think, by people who, who hadn't really read the book um, as an expression of, of Holocaust denial. Um, you know, we are, we are uh, familiar with um, uh, Holocaust deniers like uh, Fred Leuster or David Irving, who might speak of the myth of the Holocaust, meaning this is something that, that didn't right. happen. Uh, that's not at all what Zifferle means by myth, although I do think that he chose provocative language intentionally. Um, what what Zifferle means by myth is not a, a falsehood, but a truth that has been put beyond question or criticism. It's an idea, an event perhaps, um, that becomes uh, the, the focus of an almost religious reference. And, and Zieferle goes on to argue that in Germany, Holocaust remembrance has become a kind of public cult, a, a kind of civil religion that is not really about getting to the bottom of the moral and historical problem, but is actually a form of self-congratulation. And that Germans uh, have come to believe that uh, because they participate in these rituals of remembrance and they, they pay obeisance to this myth, that therefore uh, they can move on. 
and yet they can't. The duality is that the, the myth of the Holocaust becomes uh, a kind of anchor that infuses everything. And the mood that, that Zieferle is, is capturing, um, which I think is one that other German intellectuals have explored in different ways, is of one of being uh, trapped by the past and sort of fixated on the National Socialist past, but also believing that the fixation in itself somehow justifies moving forward. Hmm. So one of the parallels that uh, you kind of elucidate in your article that um, is fascinating is kind of th this parallel of almost the Holocaust, the Holocaust as a religion, as, as a cult, that it takes on it almost... And using the you know terminology myth, it's we're really talking about almost a divine nature. It's unapproachable. It's unassailable. Uh, but it's also as as Zeiferly points out, it's kind of you can't expiate it. You can't ever seem to get rid of it. If you can't touch it or address it or or question it or even um, uh, really deal with uh, the reality of it, it becomes something that is uh, it's a it's a. Um, uh, millstone around the neck, right, of, of the German people. And, and so much of what they have done in terms of education has been to talk about saying never again, to talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, defining themselves about what they are not and what they are against, rather than really kind of who they are. Um, and there's, there's a, I think, a, a tendency I see in secularism, that if you remove um, any kind of divine source of truth or any kind of like extra uh, human source of, of truth. What you're left with is just you're defined by your own humanity. You're defined by your own acts. You're defined by your own horrors in the past. And there seems to be, um, there seems to be kind of um, no hope. There seems to be no sense of, uh, of redemption. But even I feel uncomfortable talking about this, right? I mean, I feel uncomfortable using the words redemption and Holocaust in the same sentence. And I feel like I can hear critics in the background, much maybe like he did, of just people, if you even begin to talk about like somehow moving on from the Holocaust, it's, it makes people very uncomfortable. So talk a little bit about what hope you see in the future for Germany, right. for anybody. I mean, it's like, it's like, okay, if, if it is, um, if it is, it has reached this kind of mythic kind of divine status, um, and he's arguing that that has um, created, you know, cultural and identity problems for Germany, and in reaction to those cultural and identity problems, they have bent over backwards to let people in their country and to, um, you know, expunge any trace of Nazism out of their country, and yet... It hasn't prevented genocide. It hasn't prevented anti-Semitism. It hasn't pre pre prevented a rise of the alt-right in their country. Um, so what future, how do um, Germans, how do Americans, how do we deal with the Holocaust? I mean, what's the appropriate way if not to treat it as something that is kind of sacrosanct and horrible and, and worthy of you know, veneration? What's kind of the middle ground between that and saying, ah, let's just move on. It doesn't really matter anymore. Well, I wish I knew, and I, I think if if I did, they might give me the Nobel <laughs> Prize. And right. and and this this is precisely um, the existential problem that the Holocaust raises. Because of course, there there have been there have been other incidents of of massacre and genocide uh, and destruction in the past, and no doubt there will be in, in the future. 
So to say that the Holocaust is entirely unique seems to be a way of, of denying those similarities. At the same time, there really does seem to be something different about this set of events, partly because, and I think Zifferle is um, quite uh, insightful on this, partly because it was harder to dismiss as the expression of uh, uh, backwardness um, or, or uh, lack, of, lack of civilization. So he makes the, uh, draws the analogy between kind of the, the Soviet Union uh, and their uh, a myriad of crimes, m- many of which would equal, if not um, exceed, what the Germans did in terms of loss of life and, and uh, uh, oppression are almost treated, since it's sort of this, this weird Asiatic barbarous, you know, a backward um, Russian kind of thing, uh, that it's, it's somehow less, it's somehow less important, it's somehow maybe a little bit more explainable, but because the, the German crimes arose out of modernity and arose out of and the Enlightenment and kind of secularism, that it's, it is, uh, they're more acute, they're more guilty of it. Yeah, uh, or or another way of of putting it is that there really is a kind of double standard, um, and Germans, and not only Germans, are, are willing to excuse or or minimize um, the bad behavior of those who are not thought fully civilized. Uh, Germany, Germany didn't have that excuse. And that made its its crime seem particularly severe. The other element uh, to which uh, Zifferle alludes in other passages that were controversial um, is the specific focus on Jews, whose, whose story lies through Christianity at the heart of Western civilization. Um, and I, I think Zifferle points out with, with some justice that you can get away with, with killing gypsies or Ukrainians or kulaks because nobody really cares. Maybe, maybe they and their descendants care, um, but they don't seem to have a world historical significance. But the Jews are the world historical people par excellence, the, the, the idea of world history as it was developed in, in Western culture by German philosophers like, like Hegel revolves around the Jewish story. So to attack Western civilization at its core further magnifies the crime um, beyond the, 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 the body count. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about how this translates over to America, because there are, you know, America deals with its own set of historical sins and historical sins that uh, I think in in similar ways sometimes carry a a significant amount of generational guilt um, that uh, there are many in society. Let's say slavery is probably the the most uh, analogous um, kind of instance of something that happened in, in America's past that is that is horrible, horrendous, and has much of our history has been defined against us moving away from that and defining our culture by that we are not that anymore. Um, and yet we um, kind of struggle with it. I mean, talk a little bit about um, uh, maybe the role of, of guilt, the role of uh, 
generational guilt uh, in kind of forming national identity? I mean, how do you see, because we're in our own kind of existential crisis in America right now of trying to decide who we are. There's some people that say, let's go back to the past. The past was great. And then there are other people that say, how could you say that the past was horrible? You know, if you were an African-American in the 1950s, you might think it was um, uh, a horrible time. If you were, if you're white and you look at the 1950s and think it's, it's leave it to Beaver and it's perfect. Like what, can you talk maybe a little bit about maybe the role of generational guilt in forming national identity and maybe some of how what we're seeing in in Germany of how they contend with the Holocaust maybe translates here? Well, I think we we certainly have our own version of generational guilt. And I noticed in the news just a few weeks ago um, that it was revealed that uh, Mitch McConnell um, is a descendant of of slaveholders, which probably isn't very surprising to anyone, but was supposed to impose on him some special burden of guilt, even though he's removed by many more generations than Zifferle or even younger Germans. Germans are from from the crime um, it, itself, and in some of the responses I got after the publication of the piece, people said, "Well, you you really should have talked about America, because." In slavery, especially, uh, we we have our own original sin to be forgiven. Um, but I think that America is actually lucky in this respect, luckier than Germany in that we, we still possess relatively healthy uh, religious communities and institutions um, that are devoted to precisely these, these problems. You know, it's not the only thing that uh, religion or any way Judaism and Christianity are about, but one of the things that they're about is the problem of sin and guilt and redemption. And I think that actually until until recently, um, it has been the influence of religion that has allowed us to come to terms uh, with with our past in a relatively successful way. And it's you know it's very easy to resort to cliches here, but it's 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 not it's not an accident that many of the leaders of the the Black Civil Rights Movement uh, were were ministers or had uh, deep roots in religious communities. They knew how to talk about sin and. Guilt in a way that did not result in a, in a permanent stain, in a permanent burden, or at least they could suggest that that was not a necessary outcome. Um, in Germany, those, those traditions are almost entirely dead. And one of my criticisms of Zifrila is that when he, he turns um, to this religious language, specifically mm-hmm. Christian language of, of forgiveness, um, I, I, I can't help but wonder if it's merely instrumental. Right. It's like a vestigial thought in his head of just a... Or, or rather, I think he, he perceives that this is the only language in which one might deal with with these problems in a morally satisfying way, but he can't quite bring himself to take it altogether seriously. Um, and in this respect, uh, he, he's not alone. Um, one of um, Zieferle's uh, 
self-chosen intellectual masters uh, was a German writer uh, named Ernst Jünger, who was actually the most decorated surviving uh, soldier of the First World War, um, during the 1920s and early 1930s became a leading figure among the so-called conservative revolutionaries. These were right-wing intellectuals who um, were not Nazis necessarily, and some of them, like Jünger, uh, became opponents of the Nazis, but did encourage a kind of authoritarian, militaristic, national uprising. Um, and then during the war, Jünger was uh, deployed in, in Paris, where he served in the German occupation force. But as early as 1943, Jünger wrote a pamphlet uh, called Der Friede, uh, the, the Peace, um, in which he suggested that the only hope for um, a restoration of Europe after what he saw at that point as the inevitable Allied victory um, was a kind of religious revival. And in fact, the Allies liked this pamphlet so much that they printed copies and dropped them by airplane uh, on, on German uh, positions. And some of Jünger's critics, uh, including including the legal theorist Carl Schmitt, with, with whom he had sort of a frenemy relationship, um, thought that this was why uh, Jünger came out quite well uh, after the war. He became a major figure in German literary and intellectual life. Um, but there, too, just, just like Zieferle, there's an instrumental quality that's very hard to take seriously. So when someone like uh, uh, Pope John Paul II expresses a desire for forgiveness, confesses his own guilt, not in a personal sense, he, he didn't do anything wrong, but on behalf uh, of, of, of his people and his co-religionists, one can take that seriously, whether or not everyone accepts precisely the terms in which he, he expressed that wish. Um, with Zifrila, it's it's much harder so whereas he articulates the problem in really, I think, a profound way, he remains trapped by it. And that, that may have been part of um, the, the, the deep pessimism and, and depression um, that characterized his work even, even before his suicide. So do you see, uh, like, that tendency... Uh to use religious language in kind of an instrumental way, kind of without the uh, the trappings uh, of the religion. We see that, I think, in the United States, I mean, currently. And I, I think there is this... Um, there's a lot of language that the that the left, a lot of language that the secular environment uses that's very inherently moral language. Um, and uh, they're seeking justice, uh, but they, they have a difficult way of articulating what that justice looks like or how to achieve that, that justice. And um, uh, that it crosses into history and it actually it kind of crosses over into even uh, the history of World War II and the Holocaust when you look at people like uh, uh, um, Alexandria Alexia Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, you know, and she's when they're talking about um, the internment camps in uh, of immigrant internment camps on the border, they call them concentration camps, right? They're, they're using a, a certain language to uh, evoke the the horrors of that, and uh, it kind of brings us back around to the uh, uh, the use of the Holocaust and the appropriation of it. Um, 
how do you uh, kind of how do you assess that in light of uh, kind of the German problem? Or how do you assess that in light of uh, how we're using the Holocaust, how we're searching for uh, justice, maybe without the um, the means to uh, achieve it in religion? Well, I, I think one lesson that was drawn from the Holocaust, um, including by some of the architects of the European Union, um, was that uh, na- nation states had to be abolished, um, or, or at least um, their role had to be made as small as possible. And I, I think that echoes through the rhetoric of, of people uh, like AOC, um, whose description of these detention centers as, as concentration camps, although probably true in, in a literal sense, was also a way of evoking a very different and much darker history and, and trying to link the enterprise of, of border enforcement, which has been regarded as, as legitimate for, for many centuries um, to extermination. And, and that, that is clearly not a connection that can be, um, that can be supported. So I, there I think um, the, the wrong lesson was drawn from the Holocaust. Um, what, what is the right lesson? Again, um, I, wish, I wish that I had the answer, and it may be ultimately the mythic quality of the Holocaust that, that it, it does not bear any human response. That's, that's what the philosopher um, Robert Nozick thought that its ultimate significance was, that, that the Holocaust defied rational analysis. And that means that we just have to live with it and continue as best we can. And that will mean different things in different countries. So uh, one of the reasons why Providence uh, exists, you know, we are a journal of Christianity, American foreign policy, but we're trying to, you know, equip the American mind to engage the real world by kind of injecting into uh, a certain sphere, the foreign policy sphere, the public policy sphere, um, religious language and redeem it in, in the sense that it's not just a matter of aesthetic interest, right? I mean, there's a, there's a reality there. Um, and, uh, but as culture is increasingly kind of secular, um, the problem that is besetting, you know, Germany right now, and that they become obsessed with these other identity markers, um, whether it's, it's past sins or, you know, past struggles or past, you know, historic kind of identities, like as, as we increase, um, and become increasingly secular here in the United States, do you see, um, a potential, uh, future where we're similarly kind of struggling w- with our identity in such a way that it, we become hamstrung by our own past, that we're unable to move into a, any kind of hopeful future of a positive identity of, of who we are as Americans because we are so embroiled with um, the misdeeds of our, you know, forebearers. I think I think secularism makes it much more difficult and to or secularization. Mm-hmm. Not, quite right. the same thing yeah, as right, secularism. Sure. Right. Um, and to return to something you said earlier, one of, one of the, the striking features of social justice movements or, or so-called wokeness, as, as people say usually in a dismissive way, is, is how they reproduce 
religious features and religious concepts and rhetoric, but drain them of their religious significance. And in particular, they drain them of the possibility of reconciliation or or forgiveness. So um, the journalist Matt Iglesias has, has spoken of the Great Awakening, um, which I think he meant as as a joke, but it is actually a very helpful concept. We are, we are engaged possibly for the first time in American history in a great moral struggle or a great moral conflict in which the resources of religion are almost absent. And that's, that's bad. Uh, it, was, it was believed uh, for a long time um, that religion was primarily uh, a, source, a source of conflict. And therefore, the way to have harmony in public life was, was to avoid invoking religious concepts or using religious language. And there, there are historical reasons to believe that. But what I think we're, we're now seeing um, is that a, a secular public sphere um, is no less contentious and maybe more. Right. Because there seems to be no um – there are no mechanisms for forgiveness. There are no mechanism. There's no way to transcend what we're dealing with now. It's like all we have is the present. All we have is kind of each other. If you eliminate God and the transcendent from the equation, then um, all you have is the here and now. And it's, it seems to it robs us of our maybe ability to uh, interact with one another. I think it robs us of a certain measure of of hope. Um, my guest today has been uh, Sam Goldman. Associate Professor of Political Science and uh, Director of the Loeb Institute at uh, George Washington University, also the author of God's Country, Christian Zionism in America by Pennsylvania University Press. Um, Professor Goldman, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>